This is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Bring, bring, bring. Hi, Andres. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Fine, thanks. Great. Good. Really, really happy to have you uh, come on and discuss this hornet's nest minefield insert uh, other analogy uh, here. Um, but yeah, but before we get started, would you mind briefly introducing yourself for, um, for the listeners? Uh, yes. Uh, my official title is I'm a reader in intellectual property law at the University of Sussex. My unofficial title is I am Technolama uh, on, <laughs> online. Um, I, I go, uh, I, I use that sort of a, online identity because it's much easier to say than my full name, which is Andres Lorenzo Guadamos Gonzalez. People <laughs> tend to remember Tecnolama a little bit better. And I would also probably describe myself as a legal geek. I'm interested in the interface between law and technology. Perfect. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I've definitely enjoyed following your Twitter for many years now. I feel like, um, yeah, there's there's like only a select few people who are legal geeks and have strong opinions with regard to, let's say, crypto and now AI. Uh, so I, I appreciate the fact that you're out there publishing uh, uh, casually, frequently. Um, it's, it's really quite rare. And when we say legal, I mean, it's often so tied to jurisdiction. So do you focus primarily on... Uh, a specific region or are you looking at the intersection of different regions? So I try to write a little bit uh, what we know as comparative law. Um, I'm interested in, in sort of looking at the legislation from different perspectives, even though I'm based in the UK. I am Costa Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, so that already gives me a little bit of uh, background on look, uh, looking at different uh, jurisdictions. Um, I would say definitely that I'm more familiar and more comfortable talking about UK law. Um, and uh, specifically, but I know reasonably well uh, European law and just enough about U.S. law. Uh, but whenever I don't know anything, I defer to experts in those in those regions. Awesome. Well, the um, the reason for us to invite you beyond uh, you know beyond being kind of fans of your work. Um, is you recently published a paper. We're not going to have the time to get through all of it, but um, the paper is called A Scanner Darkly, Copyright Infringement in Artificial Intelligence Inputs and Outputs. Um, I devoured it over the course of the last week. Um, it's really, really useful and we'll link uh, so that other people can can jump into it. But but I guess without wanting to get so detailed that you know people who are maybe coming at this topic fresh 
um, uh, are already dizzy. Um, you know, what, what was the motivation for, for writing this article and, and what's kind of like a brief synopsis of, uh, of, of the paper before we dive in? Yes. Uh, I've been interested in artificial intelligence actually for about 10 years now. Um, I started uh, being interested in what was uh, known back then as data mining. And uh, there was a discussion uh, about uh, adding a data mining exception to UK law. That was uh, almost exactly 10 years ago. And I started getting very interested in, in this. And so I've been writing about that. It's one of my geek topics. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, I've also been uh, doing a little bit of work on NFTs and uh, uh, crypto and smart contract and stuff like that. But specifically on this, um, I wrote about the authorship question, uh, whether or not uh, artificial intelligence can generate works that can be protected by copyright. That was back in 2017, around that time. And then I wanted to write a comparative piece. So that piece was called uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Copyright? And uh, following the Philip K. Dick uh, uh, motif, I thought, uh, well, why not have a companion piece, not on the authorship aspect, but on the uh, infringement question, whether or not, uh, um, well, whether an artificial intelligence can infringe copyright, or obviously the, there are different questions for this, but I wanted to have that, uh, that explored in a paper. And here I am. <laughs> Three years after. Yeah, wonderful. I always find it, it it's really useful. I was actually, I just met with um, Paul Collar from the Open Future Institute and we had kind of a, a copyright heavy discussion over lunch. Um, and it's always really, uh, it's always really interesting to get kind of different perspectives on this, right? Because I mean, for those who maybe aren't super familiar, there's a really, really, there's kind of two parallel debates happening right now, right? Where on the one hand, there's this question of TDM, text and data mining, um, and the legality of commercial and research entities um, scraping large amounts of data from the web in order to train machine learning models. Um, you know, there's kind of like an ethical question around that, which is sometimes intersects with the legal question around it, right? Like it's, those are two separate things. Um, like what the law allows is not necessarily what everyone thinks it ought to allow. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the, this kind of question, um, this question of whether exactly AI produced works uh, can count as, you know, like authored works in a traditional copyright sense. Um, maybe it's useful to kind of separate those two out and start out with the question of kind of text and data mining and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the kind of protections that many would assume come with, uh, come with copyright in that context. What, what have you found and kind of what's your feeling on, on this, uh, without obviously being able to be definitive because it, it, it's, it's quite complicated. Yes. So um, here is where um, things are starting, indeed, getting very complicated. Now, um, if we start with the question of text and data mining itself, um, it actually started being explored, as I mentioned, a few years ago. Um, generally speaking, um, in Japan and uh, and the UK. Um, now, it started, the first people that started talking about this were looking at text and data mining more from a scientific perspective. And it was always phrased as something that was beneficial to humanity. So the idea or the way it was presented, the idea that was presented always was, well, 
uh, we have all of this amazing amount of information, journal articles and uh, books that contain a lot of information, a lot of data. This data could be beneficial to society, could be beneficial to humanity, but it's locked away. And we need ways in which we can explore and mine information out of that data. Therefore, we need to give researchers the possibility to do this without fear of infringing copyright. So it was always phrased in very positive terms. Um, uh, we want to discover a cure for cancer. Therefore, uh, let's give uh, researchers the possibility to explore this uh, uh, this trove of information uh, without without fear. And that was ha- that is how the debate started. Um, and then we started seeing some uh, exceptions and limitations to copyright being developed. Uh, Japan was uh, was. Uh, one country that uh, passed one in their legislation and uh, the UK passed another one in 2014, specifically for scientific research. So it was saying, all right, if you are conducting scientific research, you can, uh, you're not infringing copyright. You can do this uh, without without fear. Uh, uh, and that was in place at around, uh, say, say, 2014. Fast forward a few years and the European Union started discussing a directive on a called this Digital Single Market Directive, and they start looking as well as uh, at text and data mining and including an exception uh, to copyright, and they eventually do it in 2019. Um, but controversially, they did it in, in a very strange way. Uh, I think that even people who were looking at this um, closely were a little bit surprised at how they did it, because uh, most countries had done an exception for um text and data mining for scientific purposes. But um, the EU passed one that had contained two articles. One was for scientific research, for scientific purposes, and the other one was for any purpose, for commercial purposes, including, uh, well, whatever uh, whatever purpose one would want to do, as long as um, the people doing the text and data mining respected any opt-outs uh, or any reservations by the copyright holder. And this is where we are right now. We have this uh, bit of a strange environment in which the all of these exceptions to all of these text and data mining exceptions were passed almost with no discussion whatsoever on artists, on musicians, yeah. on writers. <laughs> and it was all sort of all went under the radar. Nobody discussed it until now. And here we are. Yep. <laughs> so you mentioned that, you know, it was kind of like largely framed around trying to benefit kind of like big questions like cancer research and things like this. Was there also discussion around competition uh, at this time? Like, oh, you know, we want the UK to uh, discover XYZ before China, for example. Was there any kind of like nationalist uh, competition as part of the discussion? Not so much. Um, There was always this idea um, that if you allow for these exceptions and limitations, uh, this can be a competitive advantage, but it was never framed in that uh, way specific. Mm-hmm. Um, there has always been the fear that China is going to come and steal everyone's lunch. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, by um, by being a very 
AI-friendly or pro-AI uh, country and jurisdiction with almost no interest in, in protecting intellectual property. That's it, The realities are different, but that's usually um, the way it's framed um, when people are thinking about uh, large countries like India or China. There is very little enforcement of uh, intellectual property. So the idea has always been, okay, we need to get our act together. We need to get legislation that is going to allow us to bring in innovation and uh, also investment, obviously. Uh, so it wasn't written uh, to, to answer uh, your question directly. It, it, it wasn't a specific, but it was always there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And of course, like in establishing that a lot of these TDM laws were initially framed in the kind of the domain of research that also points to kind of the sticky and complicated nature of the current situation, right? Where you have just by the nature of the stack of how these AI models are trained, you oftentimes have a combination, right? So one of the, you know, and being in touch with the guys at Lyon, for example, who are responsible for putting together the Lyon 5B data sets, um, who are legitimately a academic research institution in Germany who by EU and uh, uh, law have the right to compile uh, data sets for um, for machine learning purposes. Um, however, these data sets are also now being used by commercial entities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in some cases, right, you also have the scenario where, I mean, the genesis of OpenAI as an organization, for example, began as kind of a nonprofit research entity. It's also right? complicated it, in the States because a lot of the biggest universities are for-profit institutions. They're not necessarily public institutions. So what, yeah, what exactly... <laughs> falls under the banner of research like is it just is it supposed to be academic or can it also be well i think it's like the, the the forefront of all this research has happened largely within private companies who have right. commercial wings so it just gets right. really like confusing <laughs> yeah it, it it gets very complicated it also gets complicated because um there are research institutions that are following the rules that are just research institutions, but then there are often not rules about further or subsequent commercial use afterwards. This is what some people call academic washing or uh, Hmm. sort of um, research washing, I think is the other term that I've heard. (laughs) Um, And the idea is is precisely that um, all of these institutions are actually following the law. And I know several institutions that, that do this. But then they publish the research and the research is taken by commercial entities. And that is perfectly acceptable under some of the definitions of the law. Um, Now, I I think um, in the UK, we have this uh, loophole. We we can call it like that. So there are some research institutions based in the UK because the UK only allows for research, uh, for the exception for research. Um, That do this and then the work gets taken by Meta, by some other commercial entities. Yep. Um, so if we think that this is a loophole, we need to close it. That That is a, another story. Um, Germany, actually, it's, it's interesting because I, I think Germany has uh, defined or closed this loophole by saying, okay, if your research is going to be used specifically or, or primarily for commercial, uh, for the production of commercial outputs, then um, you fall on as a commercial institution. Therefore, you have to follow the rules set out for commercial entities. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's it's 
it's crazy. Um, Sounds like there's enough gray area for people to exploit. <laughs> well, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, this is kind of one thing I wanted to ask just outright, right? Like, so we're obviously in various ways. We've been interested in this for many years. And more recently, you know, we launched this organization, Spawning, where we're kind of building on top of the opt-out provisions, right? So saying, look, th there's regulatory uncertainty here. Our position is if we can register opt-outs, the more opt-outs we can register, the more likely it is, whether or not the law uh, requires somebody to adhere to them, the more likely it is that, uh, you know, organizations training models will honor those opt-outs, right? That there's kind of a way of producing clarity outside of a kind of regulatory framework that's always going to be too slow. Um, but one thing we encounter in those circumstances is there's a whole lot of people online who are very confident that, you know, the text and data mining that has happened in order to produce these models is a clear violation of copyright. And I wanted to ask you about, right, what's your feeling about that? Um, and to prime it a little bit, I am not confident that that's what the case, for better or worse, right? Yes. Uh, uh, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> Please get started. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I've, I've given up on talking about some of these things on, on, on Twitter because it, it, the, the second you mention something, there is an army of reply guys. Uh, oh, I know. That, <laughs> <laughs> that descend upon uh, upon my mentions. I've I've had to up my filters. Um, all of my <laughs> I, I I now learned. Uh, I'm an expert on on Twitter uh, quality filters. I um, thankfully it, it works for mo most of the time. I still enjoy Twitter uh, for the most part. I don't listen to all of these uh, people, but yeah. Um, whenever you express an opinion. Uh, uh, People are going to disagree. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and also, strangely, uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, sometimes the fact that uh, I, I I play a llama online. Some people tend to be very animated against <laughs> against some, some opinions. I don't know. Uh, but but having said that, okay, um, I I find that to me it's quite straightforward. Um, companies and, and to me this is not even remotely controversial um, organizations whether or not you think that they're doing research for commercial or non-commercial reasons think uh, people like Lion are complying with the law as it's written as of 2023 um, and this is apparently something that is very controversial to say yeah, <laughs> on yeah. Twitter um, now the explanation for this is, um, it, it, it may sound a little bit complicated, but it's actually, generally it's quite simple. First, Ly what Lion is doing is it doesn't copy any of the images. Uh, so what it does, it collects or it scrapes pairs of uh, uh, links or hyperlinks and a, a text description. This is how the internet works. The internet search engines and the entire internet is predicated on the collection uh, of, of, of links. So, um, funnily enough, uh, copyright law actually has provisions that allow people to do this uh, legally. So, you are not infringing copyright unless you are communicating the work to the public. And this is one of those terms that sounds very legalistic, very copyrighty, uh, if that is a word. But it it is very simply explained is if you're collecting a link and that link is to a work that hasn't been communicated to a new public, you're not infringing copyright. 
so it's as simple as that. I would be infringing copyright, for example, if I have a link uh, to a football match that is uh, being shown on a pay-per-view or paywalled television. Uh, that would be a communication to the public that is uh, to a new public. Therefore, it's infringing yep. copyright. Yep. Um, so what Lion is doing is just linking to existing information on the internet. And I think that it, I, I, I've looked at the case law. Uh, to me, there is no way that this is a communication to the public. Well, totally, because um, it's it's literally just a curated selection of links yeah. that Common Crawl would provide. And Common Crawl is, you know, about as legitimized a kind of institution as, as it gets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that is the first the first thing. The second one is that even if what they're doing is infringing, and I will repeat that I don't think that what they're doing is infringing in the first place because it's just a collection of links. Even if that was the case, they would not be infringing copyright because um, of the they're, they're located in Germany and uh, they would fall under the provisions of the text and data mining provisions and the digital single, single market directive. Yep, yep. And so how would that extend then to, let's say, the AI companies? We can bring up Stability AI or OpenAI or you know, whoever else um, who are, let's say, using MidJourney, right? Who would use those data sets in order to uh, you know, collect links, train on the information provided on those links, um, and produce a model for commercial or open benefit do you, do you hold the same position uh sort of uh, <laughs> things start getting a little bit com more complicated and it may depend on the details um on, on the specific what is going on uh, what's happening with the training so um in order to train a model and i'm going to say first that i'm not a uh, technologist, I'm not a machine learning expert. I've been reading a lot of papers and I sort of understand what's going on. I've had things explained to me, but this is my understanding. So my understanding of what happens when you're training a model, one of these companies actually take, for example, the links from Lion and they create a temporary copy. Um, and that copy uh, is used, uh, for example, in, in the case of the diffusion models, they uh, diffuse it, they put add nose to it, and then they put it back together. Yep. It's like a it's um, like taking a weird photocopy or something or a negative imprint of the, yeah. Yes, exactly. So it, it sort of uh, add noise at add, add, add this thing. And then um, what happens with that is that uh, the model is trained on that image. The model doesn't need a copy of that image anymore. They can remove them. They can delete them. Uh, it makes zero sense to keep, keep copies of those works. Yep. Uh, they serve no purpose whatsoever. Uh, um, one of the case, cases that is being brought uh, describes what's happening as a collage that is not true. That couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I was actually shocked to see that. Can you just, a lot of people aren't going to be familiar with that. Can you just explain what the case is and why um, the language that they're using um, just won't really hold up in court? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm talking specifically of the uh, case uh, uh, between artists uh, or the class action lawsuit uh, between some artists. And I think it's uh, uh, Midjourney, Stability AI, and uh, DeviantArt for some <laughs> weird reason. Um, um, that case is alleging 
that there is copyright infringement in two ways. So first, they have a very strange argument um, that says that um, every input of the 5.678 billion uh, images uh, that are linked to in a data set like Lion, um, that anything that you create uh, from that data set is a derivative of those 5.6 billion images, which is legally ridiculous. Um, I, there, is, uh, there is no nice way of saying this. I've, I've tried to be nice about it, but no, honestly, it, it makes zero legal sense because uh, I, I call it um, uh, a little bit, well, it, it's diluted copyright or, or uh, you know, everything would be infringing copyright if that was the case. Uh, absolutely everything. Um, so, that is the first argument that they make, uh, saying that um, things are everything is going to be a derivative. Um, I don't think that that will fly in any court. The second argument is they're saying, okay, uh, copies. Um, these models are keeping copies of the works, uh, and those copies are then put together in a collage. So what happens, and the, this is described specifically in the in the claims of the of the case law. I mean of the. Uh, of the litigation is that they're claiming that the uh, images that you create, for example, you write, I want a llama by Klimt, yeah. that it takes photographs of a llama or paintings of a llama, it takes paintings by Klimt and it sort of meshes it together in a collage. And that's obviously not what's happening. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, it is confusing. I mean, because even though I, I, I agree, like reading reading the case that was brought forward, it felt like there were a couple of pretty fatal errors in there. Um, that being said, right, like it beyond, let's say, the technical kind of confusion um, around it, you can, uh, uh, I think that there's still a fair argument to say, well, how much of this is, you know, uh, appropriation by means that are not accounted for in existing law, right? Like, yeah. Because one thing you can say with certainty, and I do actually agree with, right, is that, um, you know, a model is, even if, if ab abstract, a model is the product of the data the model is trained on, right? Like, yeah. even if there's no clear copies being kept or, um, and you see examples like this, right, there's been paper, papers written where it, you might, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the concept of overfitting. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for those who are not, right, like, there are circumstances where in, let's say, a diffusion model, if there is, I'll just say, six gajillion, you know, there's like a million uh, Mona Lisa images in there, um, this process of adding and subtracting noise to kind of determine what a Mona Lisa might look like, you could, in fact, um, overfit, which means that the the you know the the generated image will end up looking really really close to something that existed in the training data. It's a, it's a little bit of a mirage because it still doesn't mean that there was a copy kept in there. But 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 I, I do hear the argument that that says you know th these are these are legal technical um, distinctions that that ultimately might not make that much of a difference, right? Because clearly clearly there you know the the, the output of these models can invoke stylistic aspects um, of 
uh, protected works. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit just to explain how complicated this is. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, and I agree. By the way, uh, having having criticized strongly the, 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 the case um, that has been brought by artists, I understand why they're doing it. I understand why people are upset. Yeah. I understand the, the, the emotions and the feelings that are... Uh, brought about by the subject so uh, i even though i empathize um with the spirit of the of the litigation i cannot condone the way in which it's being conducted because it's just it, it's it could be dangerous even dangerous for the interest of artists because they're bringing it in the united states where this is actually not settled law uh, which is another uh, wrinkled to the to the very complicated fabric uh, of, of what we're talking about, and so um, if it would be possible that if they if this goes all the way and they get a negative decision, um, that could actually be detrimental in the future. At the moment, um, it's uh, still not hundred percent sure that this is uh, that this uh, falls under fair use in the U.S. For example, I actually agree. I mean, just to, to qualify and uh, perhaps, you know, this, but for anyone listening, I mean, that, that's been part of the reason why it's spawning. Um, we've kind of taken this approach of emphasizing the opt out, right? Because in a sense, you can kind of sidestep a lot of the um, a lot of the legal uncertainty there and say, look, you know, pragmatically speaking, if people who are making a living from their work want for works to be emitted from uh, from a training corpus or whatnot, then, you know, Perhaps we could negotiate that without getting into this really hairy scenario. Now, of course, the um, people bringing that case and many others are arguing from, I would say, an ideological position that in some cases I don't necessarily d- disagree with ideologically, right? Like that, yeah. um, that really machine learning training should have been opt-in uh, fully consenting from the beginning. Um, and and anyone who's listened to this podcast since its inception has, has knows that we've, we, you know, I think our first two or three episodes, we spoke to people at Spotify and at Google um, specifically about this being like, you know what, that would be kind of a cool idea. You know, like you could just train model, uh, but that it didn't happen. Um, and, and and exactly, I mean, the, the concern that we might have is that a poorly calibrated um, contestation um, could ultimately, you know, had to put this, like, seal the fate of this question, right? But it's almost like by overshooting and looking for something that is ideologically perfect, and and particularly ideologically perfect arguments tend to do really well on Twitter, right? It's the kind of the yes. core, the core of public opinion that doesn't really correlate with the way laws work. Um, uh, that you could overshoot, right? Um, yeah. And that and that you could get a far harsher judgment that that would lead to you know, complete carte blanche training based on based on these technicalities. Is, is that what you're worried about? Yes, I'm worried about that. I'm also worried, uh, which is a, another aspect, that I am worried that people, um, historically, um, uh, artists uh, have uh, lived through copyright and very interested in copyright, but also have been interested in exceptions and limitations. Uh, things like derivative works that are, uh, that are not potentially infringing commercially, uh, fan art and all sorts of mm. expressions uh, um, exist because uh, of some leeways in copyright law. And I'm worried that people are actually not thinking through 
the potentials of uh, allowing too much of what we call in copyright a copyright maximalism, yeah. which is enhancing protections, but most importantly, eroding exceptions and limitations. And that worries me a little bit because uh, I think people are sometimes blinded by uh, they see AI and they see this monster that they have. Um, they're conditioned to hate, and I know that there is a, a lot of reasons to mistrust uh, what's what's going on, but not at the expense of your own interest. I think that that that, that worries me a little bit. Uh, yeah, I share that sentiment. I mean, there is some. It is quite peculiar, right? That I mean, when we first started talking about this issue, um, you know, it was considered. I mean, you go back ten years or something. It was considered kind of a paragon of progressivism that. Um, you would lean on the side of an open internet, right? That that was, yep. and and don't get me wrong, I have critiques there in the sense that I think too much of that can also be naive in extremists, right? Um, but but at the same time, it is it has been strange over the past few years. It's kind of like this, the feedback loop of online discontent can lead people into advocating for what would be perhaps like the most punitive DRM, like more punitive DRM measures than were ever but let's proposed un- before. But, let, <laughs> like, but let's unpack yeah. where that came from because the, the last kind of like major, let's call it a disruption, it, it, we did have this kind of more free and open approach. And what we saw is that major monopolies took advantage of that and built empires on the back of everyone else's data. And so people are scared because of that. So now the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction without understanding that, oh, that also is a giant gift <laughs> to people, yeah. you know, to giant corporations that have the strongest legal teams, etc. Well, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it, it's uh, uh, there has been quite a lot of discussions about this in, in, in the openness movement. Uh, um, I I, I I started my academic life uh, very much an, an open access advocate, yep. uh, working with the Creative Commons and uh, source software and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so I understand that there has always been this fear that things are going to be taken by corporations. This is one of the reasons why actually um, we have cof- copyleft, yep. precisely to protect the community against the uh, enclosure of public resources by a private enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yep. Copyleft was specifically created with that idea. Okay, you're going to share, but you're going to share, and you have to respect that what you received has to remain with the community. And I think that maybe we have lost a little bit of sight that you can keep that balance. You can have a vibrant commons, but also with protections, maybe some form of copyleft again. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely... I'm becoming more and more um, kind of insistent that in this particular case, you kind of have this like parallel entertainment product that has emerged online, right? Of the culture war, which is, it's kind of like a real time sports. Um, <laughs> and, and, and and it's really got to this point where I'm kind of like, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think, I think that this, this conversation could be mischaracterized as um, as being dismissive of very legitimate concerns that creators, you know, have over, you know, the, the agency over their work, um, the ability for them to, to perhaps make a living from their work. I mean, far, far from it, right? But Yeah, absolutely. But, but there's uh, kind of a, there is this concern I have at least that when these things turn into culture wars, you get all kinds of other incentives at play, right? Where the incentive instead is to continue with the most severe interpretation of something. Um, and you get, you run the risk of a kind of like audience capture, right? Where you have to stick to 
the most severe conclusion uh, in order to not to not alien, alienate an audience. But but the byproduct of that might lead to kind of more and more restrictive and punitive conclusions uh, as to as to where you see this this going. You know, uh, it, yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely I agree, and and it's something that um, it, it it's uh, a bit frustrating sometimes because I always uh, I always came to this from a very uh, research-heavy, legalistic perspective. I'm a communicator as well, so I write blog posts and and tweet. Uh, So I'm I'm aware that there are people listening, but I I was a bit shocked uh, that people started putting me in a camp. And all of a sudden, I was in a camp. Exactly. Oh, and I, it's, I have never been in a camp. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm paraphrasing Tree Bird in, in the Lord of the Rings, and not on anyone's side because nobody's on my side. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. So it, it is sort of it was it was bizarre to to sort of say, "Oh no, I'm, I'm you're mischaracterizing what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not I'm not a pro AI person. Nobody's paying me anything." Um, I started hearing all sorts of weird ideas uh, that that I uh, apparently uh, espoused. I, I, I'm very interested in the legalities of this, but I'm also interested in making sure that that creators get their due. And um, But we're not going to reach that by, um, by burning everything down uh, and um, destroying old bridges. And, and I think that there is eventually going to be uh, some compromises maybe, but also um, eventually we're going to... F- Find tools that are going to do the work. What what you uh, what you guys doing are is amazing. I think uh, oh, I'm, I'm a big fan of of your solutions because I I think it's it's precisely the type of very proactive things that we need to be looking at. Um, empowering artists to be able to say no or to exclude their works um, and not wait for the legislators to get the rock together. Yeah, totally. And and as you'll know, and probably podcast listeners will know, there's something that rhymes a little bit with the the kind of NFT backlash, right? That Which also kind of turned into a culture war. And yeah. we have a habit of like, you know, like uh, unwittingly stumbling into these things where all of a sudden it's kind of like, no, it's just something we're kind of interested in. And then you find yourself, as you say, in a camp, like on a team. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not on a team. I don't do that. That's not, um, yeah. I, I, I do kind of joke privately sometimes that I'm like, just wait until the you know AI abolitionists learn that NFTs might actually be quite useful uh, for provenance and, <laughs> and value yeah, flow. Yeah. And like that's kind of the, the nuclear nuclear bomb uh, GIF meme. The tweet is like, check out this guy's timeline. He's also into NFTs. And Ew. I'm like, you probably will be too in five years um, uh, <laughs> when you thought this through. But but yeah, uh, uh, yeah. But, yeah, it is kind of funny. But but it's uh, yeah, but. But, but I don't know it, it, it's refreshing to hear that, and I mean, and again, all this to say that like it is a complex issue, and and yeah, the, it just feels like the best possible, um, the best possible strategy at least now is to actually give people tools that work and be very transparent about a desire to you know find some kind of a diplomatic resolution to this circumstance because you know I, I genuinely feel that on the side of like you know big AI companies. I don't think they want to be, you know, exploiting this valuable resource um, uh, maliciously. I think that actually that that might that might foreclose a lot of a lot of opportunities that that you know we, we'd all be better off were, were were left open, right? Like it closes a lot of doors that I think is kind of a necessary. I mean, particularly when you look at you know like you're talking about like billion data point. Uh, billion parameter models, you know, oftentimes they don't even need to be trained on the best work. 
You know, th- yeah. th- it, it's really just this kind of like very unfortunate circumstance that, that this was dealt with so kind of haphazardly at the beginning. But but going forward, I, I, I yeah, I, I do actually see a, a clear resolution there um, somewhere, somewhere quietly in the corner while the culture war is raging <laughs> in the center of the room. is Yeah, uh, uh, this this is going to happen, by the way, as well. Uh, and I think that uh, this is the other thing that um, I'm interested in, in, in trying to make sure that we get it right because artificial intelligence tools are here. They're going to stay. They are now being incorporated into every facet of our lives. Yep. Um, to me, it's been a, a wow factor that, uh, that just now we have Adobe adopting it. Uh, Microsoft is in, in, uh, embedding it into um, Microsoft Office. Uh, we're going to have all of the uh, Google documents uh, with the uh, Artificial intelligence capabilities. Now Bing comes with uh, uh, the chat uh, Bing and also the image generator. So this thing is happening, whatever happens with the legalities. Um, yeah, it, it, it's not, this is not going to stop. I think that people actually have tasted um, interesting tools. All of my students are using ChatGPT. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I, I never had to tell them anything. It, yeah. yeah. They're absolutely every, every single one of them is using it. Um, so this is not not going away. We'll have what we'll need to do is precisely uh, what you're doing and and uh, what other potential solutions we can have. Um, perhaps the uh, some standards, some technical standards arising that allow people to create to put metadata and machine readable metadata into their works that allow uh, machines to say, okay, we are not going to touch this. Sort of a, a robots.txt for the artificial intelligence. Yep, that will be coming very soon. Um. <laughs> I, have, I have a question just to switch gears a little bit while we're still on the kind of input end of the conversation. Um, I'm wondering what you think about distinctions between like um, dealing with likeness. So the ability to kind of identity swap or perform through someone's likeness using machine learning tools versus being able to create something in someone's style. So that's something that we played with with Holly Plus a little bit. Like if if you can make a machine learning model on some train on someone's voice and someone's, you know, likeness, and then you could kind of perform as them. How does that work regarding copyright? Um, in a different way as creating a song in the likeness of someone else's style. Does Do you, oh, do you get the question? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> honestly, um, this is the uh, the question of the future because I think <laughs> if, if you think that copyright was complicated, this is actually probably going to be much more complicated. Now, um, style, uh, as a general rule, styles are not protected by copyright um, because we have the idea expression dichotomy, roughly speaking. You can protect uh, the expression of an idea, but not the idea itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I can write about uh, spies, um, uh, espionage in, in, in England, uh, but I cannot write about uh, a character called James Bond. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, um, uh, the more specificity, the, the more likelihood is that something is protected. And styles are not specific enough. Um, so they're just roughly speaking, they're not protected. So that is the first thing that we have to consider. And then what you're talking about is more what we know as image or personality rights or in the U.S. Uh, publicity rights. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that is not harmonized whatsoever. And every country deals with this or some countries don't even deal with this. 
Um, so it, we, what we have is a mishmash of uh, different types of protection. Uh, as I was saying, in the U.S., it's called publicity rights, and it's mo- it mostly protects celebrities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're not a celebrity, you're out of luck. Um, also, in some countries in the in the U.K. and other common law countries, we have something called passing off. So if you are passing yourself off as someone else, yeah. uh, then you have protection. But that also has sort of a... a, a a celebrity test is not celebrity, but you have to have a reputation to protect. So that usually is a is a higher threshold. So the test case, case actually involves Rihanna. Yeah, Rihanna uh, won a case. Uh, some people were selling T-shirts and passing themselves off uh, as uh, being represented uh, by her. And uh, but most people don't have that level of reputation. We are not all Rihannas. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, so. I'm sure it's also really complicated too, right? With social media, where you know it's like uh, you know w- we might have a level of reputation through the artwork we've done to maybe have a Wikipedia page, but there's a kid down the street who wouldn't have had a reputation in the traditional media industry, but has like 10 times the followers we do, right? Like, exactly. how does that work? I mean, that's like, it's, yeah. 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 So so this is precisely, we don't have rules and the more famous you are, the more protection you get, uh, but that's not in every country. Uh, countries like uh, actually uh, France, Germany, uh, the Netherlands protect a little bit more of the image of normal people. Normal people, I'm saying. Yeah, sure. Non celebrities. Um, <laughs> um, a little bit better. So there are a few very interesting cases where people have had their image used in commercial settings uh, without their permission, and that was uh, protected by the court. Mm. There is a fascinating case in. Um, in Germany, involving a techno Viking. I don't know if you. Oh yeah, techno Viking legend. Yeah, oh, the absolute legend. Uh, <laughs> that is a very, very good case. Uh, and uh, techno Viking won ten thousand euros. Good for him. What was the case? Uh, it was a case. Um, techno Viking sued the maker of the documentary that turned him into a meme, um, and uh, but it only uh, it, it only affected that one document. To remaker, so he he could not release any video presenting Techno Viking, but everyone in the world can still do uh, and show Techno Viking videos. Somehow, somehow that's such a German response. Like ten thousand yeah. euros, that's what you get, but it like does <laughs> doesn't really <laughs> solve the problem. Uh, or like it's very German. Um, it's yeah. funny too. I, I wonder. Okay, so let's uh, and we're probably not going to get around to the. Can can AI can AI create works be copyrighted? Maybe, maybe we have to briefly touch on the output. No, eventually, we'll get okay. there. But, but I'm really curious about this. All right, so personality rights. Okay, so <laughs> in the case of let's say multimodal, let's say like prompted systems, you have a circumstance where using a, let's say a guidance model like OpenAI's Clip or Clip derivatives. Um, you do actually have, I mean, we did a whole collection on this called Classified, which is like a self-portrait based on Clip's knowledge of, self-portrait series based on Clip's knowledge of Holly, right? Because like Holly passes the fame threshold to be yeah. uh, known by Clip. Um, but of course, in those circumstances, you are invoking someone of notoriety by literally typing their name in in order to generate a piece of media. Does that change the equation at all, do you believe? I think it might. Um, again, this is completely, in some instances, is completely new. And it, it, it may be possible that for some people that meet this threshold of notoriety, it will be uh, 
protected. But yeah, I, I think that we just don't have enough case law. Yeah. And this is one of the instances when I'm just going to say either we need more case law on, on, on to answer these specific questions or we need to change the legislation. Specifically, we need to look at image and personality rights uh, at an international level, maybe yep. eventually an international treaty on this. Because right now, it, there is just a mishmash of a very piecemeal bits of rights, and we are not protecting people's image adequately. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all, all is to say, like, I think on, on these, before we move quickly on to, uh, to outputs, like, I don't know whether you agree with this statement, <clears throat> but like, given all the uncertainty, the one thing I can say probably is likely is that all the organizations and companies have legal counsel. And one would expect that to see the proliferation of commercial tools that is happening at a pace of one a day now, that they have considered this and that they believe that they, you know, someone has greenlit all of this activity, right? Like, so it, the the confidence that, let's say, copyright law or, or these other more interesting, perhaps like personality uh, uh, laws uh, uh, might be a liability, um, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't particularly know where that confidence comes from, you know, uh, because because I would, one would imagine that, that you know, th- these organizations have, have kind of done their homework. Yes, um, I think that potentially that is true. Uh, I have unofficially heard from some lawyers of some organizations that... Um, You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com slash interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. Hey!